Okay, I'm recording too. All right, everybody is recording. Did everybody put their phones on airplane? Yes. yes. Then we're ready to begin. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, January 14th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Happy to be here. And Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning, everyone. Later in this episode, we'll have the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month with KHN's Victoria Knight. This month's patients got a really big bill for some pretty minor medical care. But first, this week's news. So in the wake of last week's invasion of the Capitol and the votes against certifying the electoral votes for Joe Biden that followed from a pretty big group of Republicans, particularly in the House, a growing number of business groups are pulling or at least pausing contributions to lawmakers who voted against the certification in the health space that includes such Republican stalwarts as Pharma and the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, Other health groups, including the Biotech Industry Organization, Bio, the American Hospital Association, and individual companies, including United Health and Boston Scientific, said they would pause all giving. Uh, I've been covering health care in the Capitol since the mid-1980s. I have never seen anything like this. How big a deal is this, actually cutting off money or cutting off contributions to members, uh, you know, of the Republican Party. Is this something that might blow over? Or could this really reshape the relationship between big business and the Republicans? Potentially, it's very, very big. But we also don't know how long this lasts. There's also other groups that are dark money that we don't know who is giving what to. We don't know whether some individual executives will be still giving. We don't know uh, I mean, not, I'm not an expert on K Street, but we also there are all sorts of PACs that support groups of lawmakers as opposed to, you know, Joe Smith. We don't know who's giving to what. I mean, certainly it's a big signal of possible great change. And, and it might be. I mean, it really might be. We don't want anything to do with you. That's certainly the message they're giving. But there's quite a labyrinth of money in Washington. And I don't know where the secret exits are and where the brick walls are. But yeah, the signal we're getting is that we've had enough. You're not our people. It raises the question is, are they doing this for show? I mean, because they don't want to be publicly associated with what people are legitimately calling sedition, but there might be other money flowing. Or are they really doing this because they really think that these Republicans have gone too far? And it might not be the same for all groups. I mean, there may be some business groups that don't want to have anything to do with this group of lawmakers for the foreseeable future, for which could be a long time. You know, the walls are porous, and I don't know all the pathways that you could get around. But the public message, I mean, I don't want to diminish the public message. The public message has been repudiation, and that public message does have power. You know, K Street has a lot of influence over health care, and K Street signaled, the big health lobby signaled, it's not business as usual. But right now, yeah, it's a, it's a word we can't say. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be part of this. 
Yeah, I mean, which makes me wonder how much of this will sort of spread into legislating, assuming there is going to be legislating. I mean, everybody wrings their hands at, well, lawmakers do what their contributors want them to. I mean, and certainly, you know, contributions don't necessarily change votes, but they certainly afford access. And you have to wonder, you know, how I'm I'm sure there was a lot of hand wringing um, about these business groups. I mean, the National Association of Manufacturers wrote, you know, a blistering letter about members who voted against the certification of the electoral votes. But in the House, it, I think it, it was a majority of the House Republicans, wasn't it? I mean, that's, it's an awful lot of members who businesses theoretically jeopardizing their relationship with. Yeah, that's the thing that I was going to say is there's been a lot of focus on the senators who voted with the president on in opposing the certification of election results. And that was a small number. But on the House side, it really is a lot of lawmakers, including, you know, a number of powerful lawmakers and the in, indeed the um, Republican majority leader or minority leader, sorry, uh, Kevin McCarthy is among those who voted in this way. So these corporations I agree with Joanne that there are ways around and we'll see what their behavior is over the long run, but they are at least uh, in the most direct way uh, cutting off ties with lawmakers who have a lot of power and influence over policymaking. It's not it's not a trivial number of lawmakers that they're talking about. Yeah, that's right. Kim, you were going to say something. I think that we've seen the healthcare industry really grow fed up with President Donald Trump um, over time, you know, increasingly and uh, really wanting nothing to do with him. You know, members of the industry were giving more to Joe Biden than they were to Donald Trump. The thing is, heading into the next Congress, Republicans aren't in charge anymore. So I'm sure that also doesn't hurt this decision to you know, not give to them. I think it'll be really telling what happens as we head into the midterms and seeing whether some of these uh, companies end up reversing these choices and then giving again to Republicans. Well, definitely something worth continuing to watch. Um, staying on Capitol Hill, we're now getting reports of House members who are testing positive for COVID after sheltering in place for hours with their colleagues, some of whom refused to wear masks. Now, obviously, there's no way to know if that's how and where they were infected, although the Capitol physician did send out a missive suggesting strongly that someone in that room was COVID positive. But clearly, this is going to further inflame the mask debate between Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. Um, Kim, you've been up there. Things are tense, and I'm not even just talking about the enormous number of National Guard sleeping in the Capitol at the moment. Yeah, they have been tense, and overwhelmingly, lawmakers wear masks. However, there are a group that don't. Many of them are Republicans. There are even a lot of, you know, Democrats at press conferences who regularly take off their masks when they get up to the lectern to speak. Um, there are lawmakers who have poor fitting masks that are constantly falling off of their faces, that they're always readjusting during interviews. And they are gathering in small places, in hallways, um, standing way too close to each other. You know, there are definitely ways that everyone could show a better example to constituents to be able, you know, it's, I had someone tell me last week, you know, a lot of lawmakers want to show show a good example by getting vaccinated by the for the coronavirus pandemic against the coronavirus pandemic. But they could also show a better example in how, you know, they wear masks and how they social distance and in just being consistent. You know, the masks are effective, but you have to wear them properly. You have to wear them consistently. And you have to um, cover your nose. Yes, yes, exactly. And there are masks available around the Capitol if you show up without one. Um, And as of now, I guess uh, House members will actually get fined 
if they go to the floor without a mask. And that's probably something that should have been done, you know, earlier on. So I think a lot of people could continue to do better on this and just be consistent. And that'll really help to make sure that we don't have another outbreak in the Capitol. Um, We've had that we know of at least 55 have tested positive so far. So, yeah, I mean, I can't help but think this is just going to further polarize. And I imagine that's why they waited, why the Democrats waited so long to make it a requirement, because masks are already kind of oddly, and we've talked about this at some length, you know, why why on earth are masks so polarizing? But masks are polarizing, and we're certainly seeing it. You know, Republicans turn on to watch C-SPAN, and they see their Republican members, you know, by and large, are the ones who aren't wearing masks. And as we're getting into the very worst of this pandemic, it just can't help but make things worse. Uh, one thing I think is interesting is it's clear that the Democratic leadership in the House is trying to package this as a safety consideration, which of course it is is, but, you know, they, uh, around the same time that they put in this system of fines for members who don't wear masks on the floor, they also put uh, magnometers at the entrances to the floor. They're checking people for weapons. I think there is this sense of overall safety. And I wrote about this, like, really early in the pandemic, like, I want to say February, but I do think it's, you know, 55 members is far fewer, actually, than I might have expected, given how high risk these people are. Uh, When you think about who members of Congress are, they're predominantly old, they travel by airplane regularly, and they are conducting their business congregating in rooms together in the Capitol frequently. So they're sort of doing all of the things that put them at high risk for getting COVID. And they also are a group of people who in general are at high risk of having serious disease if they do catch COVID. Um, And so it is kind of remarkable to me that there uh, continues to be this group that for what appear to be largely political reasons are resisting wearing masks. All right, well, let us talk about something that could eventually make masks unnecessary, which is the COVID vaccine. Last week, we talked about how the rollout was not going very well. Well, it's a week later, and it's still not going very well. In many states, it seems like getting an appointment for the vaccine is about the same as getting a ticket for a Taylor Swift concert, except most of Taylor Swift's fans know how to do that. Watching seniors fight with Eventbrite or phone trees isn't very confidence-inspiring. So let's start with the change in guidance from the Trump administration. They've reversed themselves and decided not to hold back second doses and to let everyone over 65 have access to the vaccine, as well as those under 65 with underlying health conditions. I don't know, as someone watching all the confusion among seniors trying to figure out how to get the vaccine they're suddenly eligible for, was this really the right call? I mean, it sounds good, but there's obviously not enough vaccine to vaccinate all these people who are suddenly eligible. I think there's a really difficult and persistent tension here in all of this policymaking between a desire to make sure that the people who are prioritized because of their high risk get vaccine and get it first and a desire to minimize wasted vaccine and to maximize the kind of speed with which people are receiving vaccine. And I think that the early rollout of this vaccine basically showed that the manufacturing was more or less up to schedule. The federal shipments of these vaccines to states seems like it was kind of okay. And then there was this breakdown between when the states got them and the number of people who were being vaccinated. And there has been a lot of frustration about that. Uh, What we've seen in the states is that initially they took very different approaches. So a state like Florida actually was right from the beginning offering the vaccine kind of to anyone who was old, which is a lot of old people in Florida. And there was a lot of chaos there. 
Um, that approach did not really result in a higher uh, percentage of those vaccines going into arms than in other states. Then we saw uh, there were states that had really strict rules where there was like, you know, tiering of, you know, it's not just that healthcare workers got it, but only healthcare workers that had certain jobs got it first. And those kinds of states um, also were kind of slow. So I don't know, there has to be some balance. If you have too many rules and too many checks, and you have to make people fill out, you know, very complicated forms to prove that they are in the appropriate group, that does slow down vaccine administration, especially when there are some people that uh, don't show up or just don't want the vaccine. On the other hand, I think what we're seeing now is that there is much more demand for vaccines among people over 65, of whom there are millions, 100, 100 million, I think, and the available doses. And so this seems like almost like lose-lose. Like this is just a very, very hard task that I think all of these states and healthcare institutions are struggling to figure out. And clearly federal officials are also struggling to figure out what is the appropriate guidance that they should be giving to states as they're struggling through this rollout. We should note that we're speaking on Thursday morning and that President-elect Joe Biden is going to be announcing at least some details of his vaccination approach uh, later today and with a speech tonight. So if people are listening to us in a few hours, it, it may be different even more than most weeks. You know, I, I think, you know, Margot hit something important is that there's this huge demand and yet there's also this huge non-demand. So um, we have this sort of a split screen of pockets that, you know, are basically willing to, you know, roll their wheelchair over somebody else to get the vaccine. And then we have areas where there hasn't been take up. And um, I mean, one a lot thing, of health workers, including health workers. But it, that also varies. You know, we've heard from Governor DeWine that, that long term care workers in, in Ohio are, are rejecting it at huge rates. And then there are other states when they're taking it, you know, where it's like a 90 percent acceptance. So we don't totally understand all that yet. But we, we do know is there has not been any consistent public messaging, which is, of course, a consistent problem with the Trump administration's response since day one. Yes, states have a lot of control, and states are at fault here, but states are not able to solve this on their own, and there hasn't been more of a framework and guidance for the states on vaccines. Plus, Congress didn't give them the money until you know two weeks ago, and it's they, they're already in the hole. So, um, I mean, I think that we will see a more consistent response from Biden. We don't know what that national approach looks like, how much of it will be national, how much will be states. There will still be a division of responsibility. We don't know what it looks like. We'll know by tonight, maybe. And the second thing is I think we can pretty safely assume is there'll be more of a, a conscious and clear effort to deal with health equity in vaccination rollout. It's both building trust in communities that are hesitant or fearful, and that's not just urban areas. It's also rural white Trump voters. So you have to build trust, but you also have to have an infrastructure that reaches them. You have to make it easy. The same social conditions that put them at high risk also create obstacles to getting vaccinated. If you have a job where you can't take a couple of hours off to go get the vaccine, that means the vaccine needs to be available nights and weekends. If you work in one place and you have to take three buses to get your vaccine and three buses back, that's not going to work. It's really a matter of getting vaccines to people, not just people to vaccines. Yeah. Can I just add that asking seniors to line up and hang around in the backs of pharmacies also maybe not the most attractive option? Super spreader event. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because supermarkets have pharmacies. I mean, it should not be an announcement over the loudspeaker at your local grocery store saying, you know, coronavirus is IL-9, you know, and then, a, you know, a malay. That should not be how we do this. 
What about this idea that the Trump administration is doing, and obviously only for another week or six days, of taking doses away from states that are being slower in their rollouts? I mean, I can sort of see that both ways. If they're not using the doses, you can you should send them to where they will be used. But on the other hand, you know, states may have had slow rollouts because, as Joanne pointed out, they didn't even get the money to do this until like two weeks ago. Some of the states that have had slow rollouts might be able to ramp up really fast for various reasons. I sort of wonder about that. I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, vaccine is scarce. You don't want to ship it to a state where you think it's going to end up sitting in a freezer. I mean, that makes sense. On the other hand, if you are trying to reach the hard-to-reach populations, it is by definition harder. So, you know, a state that looks slow might actually be trying hard to do the right thing. And a state that, you know, takes it to, that concentrates on a more affluent pro-vaccine um, you know, 65 to 70 year old mobile population, you're going to get higher numbers, but you won't necessarily reach the people most in danger. So I don't have the total answer for that. I mean, there's probably got to be a subtler formula, but not so subtle that you put vaccines in freezers. I mean, that's not where we need it right now. I think a lot of what we're talking about right now is about policy, about who prioritizing who gets the vaccine first, deciding how many doses go to various states. And I don't want to underplay that because I think that's important. But it also seems like a lot of the challenges that are occurring right now are challenges of logistics and operations, of figuring out where to send what, how many people do you need in various places, how do people set up appointments, how do you make them know about how to do that. And those are really hard competencies for these public health departments to stand up from nothing. I mean, I I can't help but be reminded of the launch of healthcare.gov, where you're kind of trying to build this huge new web infrastructure that's supposed to be user-friendly, that also has to collect a lot of information from people. And it was really hard, and it really didn't work well. Um, And even the state exchanges that, uh, you know, each did their own, there were a lot of failures there too. So I guess the thing that I worry about with pulling vaccine away from states that are kind of slow off the ground is that we hope that they're going to get better at this. You know, I I think that this is a very, very difficult undertaking for officials who may not have a lot of experience in this particular problem. And it does feel like it's potentially quite punitive if they're just slow off the ground, but they're going to get there to then prevent them from inoculating their population in the same way that other states that maybe had better bureaucracies are able to. An even more relevant analogy will be the launch of Medicare Part D, the drug benefit in 2006, was it? Yeah, I think it was, Um, which also landed with a gigantic thud. I mean, it just took weeks and months and everybody's prescriptions got messed up. And it was it was kind of a nightmare there, the rollout. And, you know, eventually it straightened out and, and people figured out how to use it. But obviously that wasn't in the middle of a pandemic and it was messy enough. So obviously we'll have more to say about this next week when we know what the Biden administration plans to do. Um, But there was also a lot of non-COVID news this week. The outgoing Trump administration approved a Medicaid waiver for Tennessee that will allow it to take its federal funding as a block grant. Now, block granting Medicaid has been a Republican policy goal dating back to the Reagan administration. Margot, you wrote about this for The Upshot. How would it work? So it's like a modified block grant. I mean, they, they basically in the notice and comment period, received a lot of criticism of their idea, of Tennessee's initial idea to provide a block grant. And so they have softened some of the edges. I think this is different than I think what people are thinking of when they think about a conventional block grant. But I think it has the basic structure. And here, here's what it, how it works, basically, is that Tennessee has spent a certain amount of money on its Medicaid program. And based on that past spending, CMS is going to calculate 
a total that will grow over time according to a fixed growth rate. And Tennessee basically is going to get a chunk of money based on that calculation. In exchange, they are getting a lot of flexibility about how they run their program that other states don't get. So the idea is you get like limited money, but you have fewer strings attached to the money. Um, And if they end up spending less than the block, they get to keep 55% of that savings, not all of it. The federal government gets some back too. And the rules about how they can spend that money are like basically non-existent. I think the the language in the um, waiver says that they have to use it for something connected to health, but that could be transportation, that could be housing, that could be, I mean, there's a large, I think, range of things that state governments do that that money could go towards. So I don't think we should think of those savings as necessarily accruing back to the Medicaid program itself. And then there are some safety valves. So if the number of people enrolled in Tennessee Medicaid changes and changes in certain groups, then they'll get more money um, or lose more money. Uh, So it's supposed to create an incentive for them not to shed a lot of beneficiaries. But obviously, the folks that really care about Medicaid and are always trying to protect Medicaid beneficiaries are very worried about this proposal because they think that Tennessee may not be a good steward of its block. They've had a lot of trouble running their Medicaid program historically. And also that these new sort of flexibilities in how the state runs its benefits um, could interfere with ongoing care that people in Medicaid need. Uh, And I guess we're going to see. Yeah, I will just say that one, I think the story that maybe has stuck with me the most of any story I've ever done was I went to Tennessee in the the early 2000s when actually a Democratic governor um, cut TennCare, which is the the Tennessee Medicaid program, and um, people were limited to no more than two prescriptions a month. And I spent a couple of days in one of the poorest counties in the state in in far eastern Tennessee in in the Smokies. And, you know, watch family doctors trying to figure out, you know, sitting there with a list of prescriptions that patients were taking and saying, I don't know which ones to pull them off of because, you know, they'll die if they don't get this or they'll die if they don't get that. I mean, it really was kind of tragic. And they, you know, did it anyway. So Tennessee does not have the greatest history with the the Medicaid program. But, you know, assuming this is one of those, quote unquote, midnight regulations um, that the Biden administration would want to undo, undoing it isn't going to be that easy either, right? So this is actually like a little bit of news that I reported in my article. So typically, uh, these waivers are not treated as they're not regulations like midnight regulations we normally think about. Uh, Waiver approvals are kind of their own bureaucratic process. Uh, and normally, uh, when there's a, turn, a changeover of administration, the new administration kind of lets the waiver roll unless there's some problem. It's not kind of unusual to reverse them. But the process for reversing them is actually relatively trivial. I think the standard is there has to be some hearing, some discussion of it, and then the new administration can basically say no. What CMS did is they granted this waiver as a 10-year waiver, which is an extremely long uh, in the history of Medicaid. And what they have been doing in the last two weeks is sending letters to every state Medicaid director saying, we want to make sure that there's continuity of policy. And so we are sending you a new contract for your Medicaid waiver. And we would like you to sign this contract as soon as possible and send it back to us. And what the contract basically says is, if we decide that we want to terminate your waiver, we're going to give you way more due process rights. So we won't cancel a waiver with less than nine months of notice. There will be multiple hearings. There will be documents involved. They're kind of creating a very long, complicated process for withdrawing a waiver. 
And, you know, any state that has a waiver approved that they really like, I think, has an incentive to sign that letter and send it back because it does protect them. Um, And I think Tennessee is a good example of a state that might want to sign that letter. I don't know for sure whether they did. And so I think it will provide grounds for if the Biden administration doesn't follow that long process and just does the normal thing of having a hearing and withdrawing the waiver, it means that Tennessee may have grounds to sue uh, to say, look, we had this contract with CMS. They promised us they would do these things. It's in writing and we both signed this document. I don't know how that will go in court, but it seems clear that the current administration is really trying to make it as hard as possible to pull this waiver back precipitously and also to pull back other waivers that they have granted or that they plan to grant in the last couple of days. Yeah. Yet another case where the outgoing administration is doing everything they can to tie the hands of the incoming administration. Um, Well, this week, I really wanted to talk about mental health because I feel like we've undercovered this critical aspect of the pandemic. All the things that contribute to mental distress are present right now. People are physically isolated. Many are in dire financial straits. People are anxious about getting sick. And the country is undergoing political unrest. Even when the pandemic gets better, we're still going to have a giant mental health deficit, aren't we? Joanne, I know you've done a lot of work on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, find me somebody who feels great all the time. I mean, Congress did, or the, the, the administration actually did make telemedicine easier, or at least for the duration of the public health emergency. Um, there has been an expansion of access to mental health via telemedicine, and I think that's probably been an important lifeline for many people. The opioid epidemic has obviously ceased being our number one public health priority, but it's still there. We're just not seeing it or talking about it as much. It's certainly there, and it's probably morphing yet again in ways that we won't understand for a while. Um, and in many ways, the opioid ep- epidemic is part of the mental health crisis, Yes, right? totally. And, and we, we know there's higher alcohol consumption during the pandemic, and we know the isolation. Um, we know the anxiety. So if you already had a behavioral health, a mental health, substance abuse problem, chances are it's worse. And if you didn't have one, you might. Um, you know, there's the difference between people who just aren't sleeping well and are anxious now and, you know, when this is over, we'll be able to adapt. But not everybody will be able to adapt after a year and a half of intense anxiety and isolation and um, all the things that all of us, uh, the mentally well-adjusted and the more normal, because <laughs> nobody is totally well-adjusted in a pandemic. I mean, it's, and, and again, you know, we're going to see pressure. The states are going to be in terrible financial straits and taking care of people costs money. Medicaid is a huge provider of behavioral health care. So they're going to be pressure to cut services in the states. And we don't know how that'll play out. But mental health is an easy thing to demand to cut. Social attitudes have changed, but there, there still is stigma. There's still people who think it's just some self-indulgent thing and, you know, just you know, get over it. pull it together. Yeah. You know, get over it. And, and that's not good medicine. But, yeah, I mean, kids who've been out of school... Um, teachers are often the ones who detect abuse or problems, um, and the teachers are not really seeing their kids in person. It's harder to see things on Zoom. Um, they don't have access to peer support. They don't have access to school counselors. Not that we have enough school counselors, but that's a digression. They're going to be a lot of victims. And there's, I mean, one of the big problems with mental health is we just don't have the workforce. There just aren't enough, you know, psychologists, and psychiatrists and counselors, and social workers, I mean, to, to basically meet the need. Is this ever going to become, you know, going to find its way onto the priority list of things that we need to fix about the U.S. healthcare system? Well, it's on my list. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my list, too. But Julie and I, you, you and I aren't 
able to. Yeah, fix we those. don't make policy. Right, but I mean, I do think there is stigma. They're still treated differently, but there also has been changes. It's not like all politicians think it's a luxury that we don't need. I mean, there's a greater awareness that this is a an illness, not a character flaw on both sides of the aisle and in the states. It's just it's not necessarily the top priority for states, and they don't necessarily have the money, or they're not going to choose. There's so many things: the to-do list, schools, housing, primary care. The to-do list. If you're a governor, you could spend the rest of your term writing down your to-do list. (laughs) But mental health parity has been, you know, an actuality since the passage of the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, 10 years now. And yet we are still fighting about mental health parity, about insurers trying their best not to pay for behavioral health services. Um, And, And also, in addition to the provider shortage, there are a lot of providers who don't take insurance. Right. I think, though, that we shouldn't totally sleep on the telemedicine change. I think uh, this has been a big change that's happened throughout medicine during the pandemic, but it seems particularly useful for behavioral health and could potentially be providing access going forward to a lot of people who might have struggled to get these services in the past because there wasn't someone who was local to them, because they had challenges with transportation, or because they thought that it might be stigmatized. I think allowing people who are doing talk therapy to do it in the privacy of their home and in a convenient way um, could have potential to expand access. But the big question there is whether it's going to get rolled back. Right, and whether it'll, whether you pay for a telemedicine visit at the same rate that you pay for an in-person visit. You know, a lot of people can definitely benefit from telemedicine, but I know from talking to counselors who work with children that it's really difficult. They get a lot of visual cues from in-person visits that really help them to sort of detect what's going on with a patient. That's a lot harder when you're on a camera and we're all kind of looking in a lot of different directions. Um, let's say a child is in a home where there's abuse going on. Then they're in the same, while they're doing this video visit, they're in the same home as their abuser and they can't necessarily talk about it. So there are people that would really benefit from it and others not so much. And even privacy is an issue. Those of us who have a big enough home or a respectful enough cohabitant of that home to give us privacy. But I mean, I can see situations where, you know, smaller residences, you know, the teenager trying to talk about their fight with their mom when mom is like three inches away. And I don't mean to, you know, a fight with a mom can be part of a serious ongoing problem, not just, you know, a teenager who wants to complain. I mean, there could be real issues that you don't have the privacy. So telemedicine isn't the answer for everything, but I totally agree that I think it's really been a lifeline for many people. Yeah, if it, if it, Sticks around. Okay, that is this week's news. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with KHN's Victoria Knight. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Victoria Knight, who wrote the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome, Victoria. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this month's patient and what happened to her. This month's patient, Lorraine Rogie, she is now 61 years old. She was 60 when we did the article. She and her husband travel around in an RV around the country. They've been doing so for the past five years, and they just go wherever they think would be a fun place to visit. So at the time that she had this medical appointment that brought her this really large bill, her and her husband were in kind of a rural area in Artesia, New Mexico, back in May. And she started having this really weird pelvic pain. She'd had a hysterectomy a while ago in the 90s. And so it was kind of a weird feeling for her. It lasted for about five days. So she's like, I need to go to the doctor. And so when she went to the doctor, 
they told her, well, we're not really sure what's going on. And they did like a pelvic exam and then we'll maybe do a test for a yeast infection. And they also asked her some questions about whether she was sexually active or not. And she said yes, but she thought she made it clear that she only has one sexual partner. That is her husband. And they've been monogamous for 26 years. So that's what happened to her. She went in for a simple problem. And eventually the pain went away by itself, right? Yeah, eventually the pain went away on its own. And then the bill came, as they say. And what did she find out when the bill came? Yeah, about a month later, the bill came and it was for $12,000. And she was just really shocked. And they were saying what the $12,000 was for, a vaginal testing panel, which included a yeast infection test, but also tests for STIs and other vaginal infections. She found herself an in-network facility, right? So this was not technically a surprise bill. She is very astute, and she had done her research, made sure it was an in-network facility. They took her insurance, even though she's in an unfamiliar area. So yes, it was in-network. So one would think that she could go to her insurance company and they would be able to work it out. What happened when she tried to do that? It turns out, you know, hospitals can charge kind of whatever they want for things. So that's, first of all, what happened. This hospital, it's Carlsbad Medical Center. It's um, had several news investigations done about it before, and they're known for their really high prices and aggressive billing practices. So first of all, this facility just has really high prices, and she was not aware of that. And so when she contacted her insurance company, they said, well, we've paid the amount that we have predetermined is in our contract with Carlsbad Medical Center. So there's nothing else we can do about it. You owe the rest of the money. So they had paid about a couple thousand dollars on it and then negotiated down the rate. So Lorraine actually really only owed $3,000, but that's still a super high amount for the procedure that was done on her. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you talked to some experts. How much should these tests have cost? I mean, if if she had Medicare, which she will in a few years. Yes, (laughs) she will have Medicare in a few years. So really, these tests shouldn't have cost more than $40 a pop, according to Medicare rates. I think she had about six tests done. So that's something around the $200 range. And that's max. Um, And that's if you bill for each test individually. A lot of times bundled, it would actually cost quite a bit less. So she's now on the hook for $3,000. Her insurance company had said, yeah, sorry, we can't help you. What eventually happened? Eventually, she went through the insurance company. They were like, no. Um, And then she kept getting bills from the medical center saying, you owe this amount of money and we will send you to collections if you don't pay it. So when she got that collections notice, she decided, well, I guess I need to pay it because I don't want them to go after my credit and ruin that. So she signed up for a payment plan and um, started paying. It was something over three years, and she started paying like $80 a month. And then she wrote in to us. So she had paid three payments by the time we read her bill and started working on the story. Then once I started working on the story and calling around and um, finding out what it actually should have cost, and I called the medical center and asked them about it, they called her a day or two later and said, oh, your bill has been waived. Uh, You're all good. (laughs) What a coincidence. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So it, it sounds like she did, she really did everything right here. I mean, she checked to make sure that the facility was in network, which they were. 
Um, and then, of course, when things didn't work out, she called a reporter, which sometimes works. Um, what should patients do before that when they're seeing doctors that perhaps they haven't seen before, even if they are in network? I mean, are there questions you should ask um, to, to avoid having this kind of thing happen? She really did all the right things, like you said, but you can be proactive in certain ways. For example, if a doctor says, I want to run some tests, you need to ask, what exactly test are you going to run? Because she really didn't know they're going to run all these STI tests. If she had known that, she would have said, that's not necessary. I'm monogamous and really emphasize that. Um, so make sure you know what tests they're going to run. And then also ask the doctor if they know how much the test costs. They might not know. They are uh, divorced from the billing side of things. But you can ask them and see if they could find out. And sometimes it also is cheaper to actually go to like an outpatient laboratory to get some tests done rather than going through a hospital lab, which is what she went through. So you could go somewhere like Quest. If it's a simple test, you could go somewhere like Quest Diagnostics and it should be cheaper. And Quest actually told me that it would have been cheaper if she had gone directly to them. So so important. I mean, even when this surprise billing law takes effect, which isn't until next year, people are still going to have to be pretty careful when they're getting medical care. Yeah, exactly. This kind of surprise bill is not addressed in that billing legislation. So this could still keep happening to people. And yeah, she didn't qualify for charity care. She has insurance. So there really wasn't a lot else she could have done. The only other thing she could have done was uh, try to talk to the insurance commissioner for the state, which I did. And I think that also applied some pressure to the medical center. So it looks like we'll just have to keep the bill of the month going. Victoria Knight, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Julie, for having me. Okay, we're back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Kim, why don't you go first this week? You have your own story, which I always encourage the panelists to do and they almost never do. So... Yeah, well, I picked it because this is my very first first-person story that I've written for a professional uh, news organization. So this is for Business Insider. The title is, I was offered a COVID vaccine even though I'm young and healthy. Here's how I did it. Um, we've talked about the problems with vaccine distribution in this podcast, but one thing that we didn't mention is that a lot of different healthcare facilities, including pharmacies and hospitals, are finding themselves with leftover vaccines. Because these vaccines have a short life, uh, shelf life. Uh, they really have to be used because otherwise they get thrown in the trash. Um, in D.C. specifically, uh, health officials have given pharmacies their blessing and said, if you have leftover shots, just go ahead and give them to whoever happens to be around in the area. Well, in the district, the word is out and people are lining up to score some of these leftover shots. And so I went around to different pharmacies. I made a lot of calls and I talked about my experience in trying to access one of these vaccines. Um, and I hope that, uh, you know, that it's helpful to policymakers um, to be able to maybe think about some, some better strategy to make sure that these leftover vaccines are going to people who need them most. And you did a lot of line standing for this, didn't you? At at least one of the lines, I, I mostly went to be able to talk to different people about what their experiences had been. You know, some had gone over multiple days, some had lined up for hours to make sure they were at the very front of the line. And, you know, look, this isn't a surefire way to get a vaccine. Sometimes you have 20 people lined up 
and they'll have one vaccine left over. Um, the way that the Moderna vaccine works is once it's once the vial is out and thawed and opened, you have six hours from there to use it. And each vial has 10 vaccines. So if people end up missing their appointments and their healthcare workers that are coming in for these appointments, then that means that they have a few left over at the end of the day. And it's it's unpredictable how much it'll be. Joanne. Mine is from The Atlantic, Why Aren't We Wearing Better Masks? It's by Jeremy Howard, and I'm not sure the pronunciation. I think it's Zeynep Tufeki. I actually emailed her and asked her how to pronounce it. She didn't answer, so I did my best. Uh, Basically, there are several countries in Asia that are supplying high-quality, proven, effective, non-counterfeit masks free regularly to their populations, Taiwan, Singapore, others. Um, In this country, we are by and large wearing, you know, a piece of cloth, doesn't necessarily fit us great. If we get things online uh, that are supposedly medical, a lot of them are counterfeit. We have no way of knowing whether mask A or mask B is better a year into this. We should have been able to figure this out. You know, this week is the Consumer Electronics uh, Show, and you know, I was just reading before we came on that there are all these high-tech masks, all these doodads. We don't need. I don't need a Bluetooth mask. I don't need a mask that's going to clean my kitchen. Well, I could use one, but I mean, I don't need one. I don't need a mask that's going to give me a back massage. I just need a mask that's going to protect me from this virus. And I don't know that any of the you know many masks that my family and I have accumulated, whether a single one of them is actually giving me maximum protection, and it shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, I absolutely feel the same way. Margot. Um, I wanted to recommend an article in the New York Times by A.C. Shilton called Why You're Probably Not So Great at Risk Assessment. And it sort of walks through some of our uh, psychological errors and shortcuts that we take that help explain why people are perhaps not being as careful as they could be in the face of the pandemic or maybe not as eager as they could be in the face of the pandemic to get a vaccine. And there was just one part of this article that really spoke to me a lot. It was just an explanation of something that I see in myself and in people that I'm close with that I found very helpful, which is the way in which we are sort of become less and less nervous about doing things, even though they are equally or maybe even more risky over time. Um, And this author compares what we are all doing in our daily lives to something called exposure therapy. So when people have anxiety and fears, uh, say they're scared of heights or of spiders or something, the typical treatment for them is that you just give them a little bit of exposure to the thing that they're scared of and then more and more and more. And eventually, if they're around a spider all of the time, their body becomes less nervous about the spider and then is a way of treating anxiety. And we are all in this unfortunate experiment, I think, where we are getting exposure therapy. So the first time that we all went to the grocery store, uh, you know, it was probably terrifying but nothing bad happened. And then we went again and again. And uh, as this author says, now perhaps you're going out for non-essential errands. Um, I have a friend who has to travel by plane for work. And she told me the first time she went, it was just absolutely horrible. And then she said, I got over the hump. And now she flies without really any anxiety at all. Now, I don't think that having anxiety is good. Uh, We've just talked about how uh, lots of people are suffering from anxiety. But I do think that it's It was helpful to me to be reminded that we have to keep our guard up even as we sort of normally become more comfortable with things as we have more exposure to them because the virus is still out there. Well, I will say that based on Margot's story and Joanne's story, um, I have bought better masks to go to the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's I, I, I'm doing somebody's recommended. It's like you do that. You put on the N95 and then you put on a cloth mask over it to keep the N95 clean. It's like I think I'm going to start doing that at the grocery store. Well, my story is from the Washington Post and it's called Young ER Doctors Risk Their Lives on the Pandemic's Front Lines, But They Struggle to Find Jobs by Ben Guarino. As someone who's covered health workforce issues for years, this is something I never thought I would see. Emergency room doctors who were finishing their residencies cannot find permanent jobs. A big part of it is that hospitals are losing money still on elective surgeries and other procedures. And while many are slammed with COVID patients, particularly in their emergency rooms, other patients are too afraid of catching COVID to show up. But it also seems to be that the very thing that has made ER doctors very wealthy, working for private investment firms who own these practices, is now biting back since those owners don't want to put more money into a currently losing asset. Eventually, all these well-trained doctors will find jobs, I'm sure, but it's another example of the dislocation in the healthcare system that's being caused by the pandemic. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound great, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Joanne? I'm at Joanne Kennan. Margo? At Sanger Katz. Kim? At Leonard KL. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>